What's going on, guys? We're back. Sorry for the long hiatus. I know it's been a while since you guys heard from us. Kaylin and I have had such a really big, busy summer from training in Germany to training in Montana, training back home in Yakima and Cody, competitions. So we're finally able to catch up from our last podcast, which Kaylin did with the MSTOA after actions. And Kaylin and I pretty much catch up on everything, fill you guys in what we've been up to this summer from uh, Granite Creek Sniper Challenge to our trip to Germany, and then um, pretty much debriefing our after actions along the way, what we, what, what we found for each one of those specific courses. And there's a, you know, a little bit of information about wind here, a little bit of information about reloading, and kind of what the future has for uh, modern-day sniper in the next few a uh, few weeks in preparation for the hunting season. So we appreciate everyone that has listened so far. Thanks for being patient with us. We appreciate all the support when you guys see us at matches, at events, um, when you guys are part of the Modern Day Rifleman Network, and when you guys hit us up on social media or emails. It truly means a lot, and we love doing what we do. So without further ado, welcome to episode 73, Where Did the Summer Go?, Thanks for listening, guys, and you guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun. This has been long overdue. This has. Got a notebook here. And I'm sure people are like, notes. they're like, ah, they're going to catch up and say how long they've been gone and so busy for the last two months that they've been off air. <laughs> uh. Well, the fact it's true. Um, that is very true. We've had a pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting summer, and and honestly, well, okay, we were just talking about it in the meeting. The last podcast we recorded was um, the solo one that I did for MSTOA. Is that correct? That is correct. Right on. Okay, well, so that was pretty much at the end of May, which would take us into uh, the beginning of June, and then I, I mean, we could just kind of recap what we've been up to the since the end of of May after MSTOA? Uh, so after MSTOA, we had um, the Granite Creek, or it was actually Coyote Springs Invitational, which is just a re, I shouldn't say rebranded. Essentially, they just switched match directors because uh, the main match director, Bill, couldn't uh, host it that year. So mm -hmm. uh, Jared and Peter Howell stood up the Coyote Springs, which is a fantastic match anyway, still. Super challenging, great terrain. Um... We need to uh, bring in 6.5 Creedmoors with that, 135.8 tips. Going around 28.20 to 28.40-ish, uh, and we did well. Um, we ended up taking second behind uh, the uh, unstoppable Godarzy and Jake Millard. Um, I mean, they've been crushing it, but, you know, uh, according to some people, uh, we had a pretty dominant lead on day one, but we definitely threw away uh, – we definitely threw away – Day two with just mental errors, you know, wrong dope. I remember dialing the wrong dope a couple times, shot the wrong target, and, oh, man, it was just a straight train wreck. Um, and I think some of the Stone Glacier guys, because we got mic'd up, actually mic'd us up for, like, one for of those. The, for the worst ones. One of, one of, the, one of the bombshell <laughs> stages. It's all good. Uh, still still had a uh, great time shooting with you. Uh, I think that was – I like day two with the um, – a lot of the tripod uh, shooting down mm -hmm. into like kind of reverse slope terrain. Um, 
uh, targets that were deflated. He he he. There was a lot of thought that went into day two, which was uh, pretty awesome. Um, yeah, there was there was a lot of targets that were um, not even partially, but mostly obscured due to terrain, which uh, I thought was a good challenge, especially to somebody that doesn't um, that hadn't seen that before. It's you know your eyes your eyes play tricks on you, where you're just like, hey man, I got to aim at the hillside type thing. So those are fun. Um, and yeah, like I actually heard, um, I was in Bozeman, uh, just got back yesterday and we were there for the summer bash at Stone Glacier. So I met up with a bunch of the dudes that we shot with. And, um, you know, like you said, we had a, we had a commanding lead on day one, but then the bleed or the leaking of points, um, on day two, uh, apparently Jake did not miss a shot that, that he fired on day two. Oh, that's awesome. So that is badass, man. That's that's awesome. And those guys are a great shooting team. They shoot really, really well. Very and consistent. It's always yep, very consistent. And um and they're doing it all the time. They're doing it, they're shooting almost every weekend. If I, I can imagine they're shooting every weekend. Yeah. Um so after Granite Creek, um I, I mean I took that opportunity too, to take the family out uh camping. We had um set up our, our tent and uh zoe and the the dogs were able to to go out there and um that was fun yeah it was we got the kids together um, it was a good time what was second half of june i think second half of june we had our classes i had yep. I had classes again for well, we both had classes i think we had um a wind clinic and a field positional clinic in our respective yes, homes yep. uh which was really good i actually really enjoyed that uh wind clinic um you know, I think we talked about this with the location that we ended up shooting at actually turned out to be uh, very beneficial uh, versus uh, Hard Mountain, mainly because of just the um, uh, the wide open space that we were shooting at that allowed us to really pay attention to Mirage. Uh, one of the things that I really noticed is finding zero or finding the no value, like pretty much where wind <laughs> is coming right at you or behind us. And that really set conditions to to really see okay like hey if wind is really blowing from three to nine what mile per hour is it and, and uh, it was right. it was very uh it was very eye-opening even for me as the instructor and the students had a had a blast uh, we were able to progressively you know kind of work together and learn together with the uh, conditions that we shot in so yeah that that's actually a, a good educational piece because once you utilize that technique and you find and you, you know you find the boil, you pivot your 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 glass to find the boil, then you can truly see what okay say let's just say the wind uh, at a boil um, is is 12 miles an hour right let's just pull that arbitrary number out and say it's 12 miles an hour. Then we can go directly 90 right and find where the mirage is starting to cruise flat across your field of view right so you're you're literally identifying like what does the mirage look like with a full value 12 mile an hour wind what's the intensity and what does it look like as it swims across your field of view in the spotting scope but then you can start shaving off and and identifying what the mirage looks like in terms of percentages as we start moving back towards the boil if that makes sense yep. and you can say okay well um, the mirage pointing at, um, in this condition, say the mirage pointing at uh, 10 o'clock 
in your in your spotting scope you can then base that 12 mile an hour raw wind speed off of your percentage value and say okay well this 12 mile an hour wind speed at 90% or 87% is pointing at this direction in the spotting scope therefore that is a 10 mile an hour wind yeah that mirage that we're seeing is a 10 mile an hour wind it's funny that you say that so we we were i mean we had easily 18 to 25 mile an hour wind conditions Mm-hmm. And um, once we figured out uh, uh, the way that I set up the targets, once I, we figured out uh, the boil or the no value, thankfully I had the target like right at exactly 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. So I remember there was like an 18 mile an hour wind that was consistent. And so we, we, we all turned over to the right, we shot that target, or I had uh, either one or two students kind of demo it and then worked their way back to, to, to quarter to no value and no shit. It went from 18 mile an hour full value to like a, a, a 16 to a 10 to a four mile an hour full value, right? Even with the wind consistently, but when they were coming off the line with the gun number utilization, they weren't saying, oh, I was using 16, 18 miles an hour at a quarter value. You're coming off the line saying, hey, I was using four mile an hour. Right. Right. And that's where that gun number, understanding your gun number um, you know, in, in respect to what the wind is doing is so beneficial yes. because you're able to just see the, the true full value vector, you know, um, mm-hmm. cause I think people overcomplicate with the, you know, direction and stuff like that, which is, I mean, it's not, it's not bad, but I think initially when you're, when you're just getting introduced to wind, um, I think that's just really the biggest hurdle um, is not overcomplicating. And I think as you get become mm-hmm. more advanced and you start to, you know, try to refine your wind calls to get to that, you know, 0.1 wind call, right? Um, yeah, you then you, you know, look at it from, you know, you're actually using a ballistic solver and you're like, all right, hey, I think it's coming from this value. Plug it in, your Kestrel or your Ford off or whatever. I mean, it's, I guess like it's just like reloading, right? Um, I didn't come into reloading and start immediately turning next. <laughs> I mean, I still don't turn right. next right now, but you know what I'm saying? Like you don't immediately like throw somebody with all this freaking nitty gritty detail to get single digit SDs when you can easily just, you know, have a good die, uh, figure out a good, yep. good charge weight, uh, for that projectile. And all you really have to do is resize prime trim drop powder and seat. That's it. Yeah, you'd be surprised at the level of precision that you can get doing as little as possible. Yeah. And that's always been the trend when we teach the wind clinics because usually uh, the light bulb gets flicked on when we go through that four-step process. And they're just like, well, wait, that's it? Like, that's it. And you're like, yeah, dude, that's it. That's about as complicated as it needs to be. And once they start identifying that, those four steps and breaking each of those things down, they're just like, wow, okay. And then being in conditions like you're talking about those 18 to 20, 25 mile an hour days, where that's intimidating for for a lot of shooters to go out and shoot in, really intimidating. But then if you go out and you just say, no, I'm just gonna stick to the process. It doesn't really matter what the conditions are because just like the distance to the target, the speed of the wind is simply a number that we have to just account for. And the be- the more you do it, the better off you're gonna be at learning how to guess it. 
because like I mean we said it's a, it's a giant guess and you have to get out there and immerse yourself in the conditions to make the accurate guesses. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so that was that was a good class. I, I definitely want to do more of those. I think, you know, doing wind clinics in regions specific uh, are important, yes. right? Because I agree. Um, you know, when you when you when you go you teach wind, you're teaching wind to that specific area and how and how we understand best that the wind is flowing you know what i mean um you know so it's very challenging when we go out east like to like volusia county or altis mm -hmm. and you get a lot of these um tail or your 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 headwinds right and you know you're educating well i mean even we're learning about the um specific wind um and how it flows through that, uh, you know, the, the, the lanes. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you can't take your approach to West Coast uh, terrain no. and apply it to uh, Altus and vice versa, no. right? It's, it won't work it's, for No, me. it won't. Um, so that's why I, I, I preface a lot of my classes with, hey, you know, when, when you're out West and you have very limited obstacles kind of blocking the wind and you're getting a lot of essentially – clean air or clean wind as you as i kind of coined that term or stole that co uh, term from you uh majority of your wind call is going to be heavily based off of what you feel at the shooter right mm -hmm. um yeah. and then on the east coast because you get a lot of a lot more dirty air kind of funneling through those lanes you always feel like you got a head or tailwind and yeah. so you know there's wind out there but you're just like well i'm gonna hold either left or right. And so at that point, you're really relying on your observation skills of what you detect downrange and understanding how wind flows and stuff like that when you're on the East Coast. And it's interesting too, just because you're going off of uh, a last shot on a plate, especially in the East Coast, um, sometimes that can bite you if, you just, if you're going off of those last shots yep. because if it's, uh, if it's really gusty, um, you know, every every shot is going to be its own wind call, and you could really be chasing your tail. And sometimes that happens, and you there's there's nothing you can do about it. You just got to go with it. I remember shooting Idaho with you last year. It was the first stage for us. The second day, day two, we were shooting down that canyon. Oh yeah, and it, I remember. And uh, <laughs> I, I think we were like all trying to like I was I think I was the first up to shoot, and we we're all trying to figure out what our initial wind call was, and it was like. <laughs> dude and i think i i held yeah. for like a i held for like a i i held for something and i missed for something and i realized That's that a, because the wind was coming nothing. through the tunnel and so just like you were saying you can't just rely on like reading the plate because what was happening is wind was channeling down that that uh uh, uh channel kind of like down that draw or uh through that little canyon and mm -hmm. um i remember every time the plate swung left I was like, oh, it was a left edge hit. I'd try to correct it back over to the right, and then I would miss right. So I remember one of my debrief points coming off the line saying to you was like, just just aim center, <laughs> yeah, and don't don't pay attention to the plate reads. Yep, and that's and that paid off. It it did because, like you said, I mean, when that when it's fishtailing like that, you run the numbers with students because sometimes I find that it's harder for them to grasp when you try to explain to them, hey, when you have a head or a tailwind. Um, don't be so concerned about this the speed change of a head and tailwind be more concerned about the the shift of a head and tailwind whether it's left or right you really got to be paying attention to the left right aspect of the mirage 
or whatever you have available down there. But then if the wind is blowing full value, um, the directional changes of full value wind are not nearly as of, uh, of impact as a speed change is. And you run the numbers with them and you show them like on, on the whiteboard and they're like, whoa, oh, okay, I never thought of it that way. And it is, it's just a game of percentages. And, and having the understanding of how, uh, you know, the cosine aspect of, of the percentage values of the wind vectors, that's a critical point in understanding, okay, yeah, with wind that's coming from full value left to right, I'd be far more attentive to speed changes versus if it's coming from a head or tailwind, I need to be far more uh, aware or focused on directional changes. Yep, yep. Cool. Oh, what was is, yeah, is, is that is that similar to what you were seeing when you did your wind clinic? I mean, your your range yeah. is very um, is is uh, I like your range because I mean you don't know what you're gonna get um, from day one no, to day don't. two, um, which is which is pretty awesome. I think that's very similar to the range that I actually use um, versus like let's say the Cody shooting complex that I always shoot at. Right, typically mm-hmm. the wind there is a consistent left to right. And I've got a huge wind flag right behind me that I just kind of I'll peek at, um, and it's pretty true. Um, whereas like your range, you know, it's like hey, like I mean, by mid afternoon it could be completely one eighty. Yep. Right. Um, it usually does that. Yeah. Um, the only time it's consistent for us is if we have a, a big weather system that's dominating the west side of the state. Um, generally that's going to produce a west wind for us and whenever it's a west heart like a a west wind that's coming from a low pressure system it's always coming at you and it's going to be present for like you know two or three days or for as long as it takes that front to move through and those winds can be you know in your face all day long at like 30 miles an hour and it that is advantageous to be able to walk students around left or right of the range to, to be able to say, okay, now shoot over here on the left side of that wind versus the right side of that wind. And they can see it's just this <coughs> massive shift in, in adjustment. Um, and th- But then, I mean, sometimes in those conditions, it can just get a little bit uh, repetitive because when it's 25 to 30 and it's always right out of the west, there's only so much you can do on yeah, that range. Yeah. Um, just from the size uh, or the, the direction of fire restrictions. But... Um, any other time, like in the summertime, it's always, it, you're going to get it 360 degrees every day. So the wind's going to start off blowing from the east, and then it'll always end up blowing from the west. But you're going to get all 360 in between. And we also have a tremendous amount of thermal activity out there that can be really frustrating. Because as soon as those, you know, a thermal pops off and a giant, one of those giant dust devils comes through, you can't see it. Like it's really difficult to see it. And then all of a sudden you're shooting in this wind shear condition where you have no idea what's going on because it's just this massive column of air moving through that area. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, um, wind is always, I think that's one thing I love and enjoy so much about long range shooting is the, is the wind aspect. Um, actually not only wind, but recently reloading, which we'll, we'll dive into later in the podcast because, like talk about what I've been doing with reloading lately, but, mm-hmm. um, so, so that was June. Um, and then end of June, we pretty much prepped for, uh, for Germany, yeah. uh, which was the first week of July, which was freaking awesome. Uh, we were able to train, 
um, some very similar to, would you say, customs? That's their. That's what they do. They're um, the ZUZ, the German G, ZUZ, and I would, I would be, it would be a very, very bad representation of the German language for me to try to pronounce it. <laughs> but um, it's basically their their version of um, our customs and ATF. Yeah, kind of combined. Um, it, it's pretty cool to see uh, how their culture is first and foremost uh, with regards to just life in general, right? Um, mm-hmm. I love that they don't subscribe to the uh, like fucking grinder, like grind, grinder ass off. You know, um, until you die, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, those guys are super chill, uh, which is they which is awesome. Chill. One thing that I don't envy though is like their gun laws. Obviously, we talked about, um, and you know, being able to shoot in places and um, the the special licenses they have to get for whatever weapon class that they plant. So, like for instance, if if they wanted to get a precision rifle, they have to either get a sporting license or a hunting license but now they're only limited to that specific class. And then like going out to shoot long range anywhere is like a, a drive and a half, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of respect for those Europeans that, you know, find a, one way or another to shoot long range because it's a, it's a testament to their, um, uh, it's a testament to, to, you know, their pursuit of uh, excellence in this game. They are, um, it, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say they are, um, it is an interesting culture because it's, it's fairly dramatic. I would say in, in departure from, you know, uh, American culture to German culture, mainly, like you said, it's just like, they don't subscribe to the grind until you die. And, and they take, uh, you know, quote unquote holiday. And that's, I find interesting because, you know, it just seems like they're far more, um, they're, they're far more engaged when they're, when they're working and then they're going to go take like five weeks or six weeks, sometimes even eight weeks of a break. So that way they can just reset themselves and come back completely fresh. And I think that there's definitely something to be said for that. You know, like when you sometimes, especially if you're if you're working right towards something um, or your or your mundane, the mundaneness of your daily routine and you need a break from that shit. Sometimes you need a break from that shit. You need to look at things from a different perspective and and go someplace so that you can get a different perspective and they treat it as such. And um, I think it's cool. I think it's a cool uh, lifestyle in that regard. But, yeah, their gun laws are terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's atrocious. Um, I would say, let's see how 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 relevant are they with? I mean, they pretty much follow what the U.S. is doing uh, with mm-hmm. regards to everything long range shooting. You know, so a lot of the stuff, the equipment that we saw them using was, um, I mean, it's almost like the Marine Corps, where it's like you're getting kind of Army's hand me downs, but by the time they get all their uh, import export, really, mm-hmm. I mean the stuff that we were having is, you know, is like, I'd say a year or two ahead of them. So, um, it was cool to, you know, be able to, uh, obviously dis- disassemble the rifle, 
uh, you know, show them and then walk them through how to assemble it, how to troubleshoot. And it's funny, I, I posted a picture on Instagram, and I, and I know better, right, to, to get these guys and be like, disassembling a rifle is not that hard. It's like, no fucking duh. But, you know, when you're <laughs> in the capacity of a sniper, there's so many other things that you're thinking about in your job that right. the disassembly of a rifle is, is – is, It's a tool. It's a tool. But not only that, it's like it's not it's, – it's not given in the instruction because, you know, you've got a – 19 I, and i understand why like you got an 18 19 20 year old freaking pfc lance corporal and the last thing you want them to do is to start tinking around with a rifle system you know so mm-hmm. i definitely think you know the assembly this assembly should be reserved for more like team leaders corporals and chief scouts but it still should be something learned uh in, in the community but at a certain point of leadership or maturity level Right. Yeah. It's important, man. You, you have to have that because you know, as well as I do, when something, when, when something such, uh, so simple could be fixed, um, it derails everything. It derails training. And then all of a sudden you got a gun that goes away forever and it never come back because of something really, really silly that could have been fixed. You know, with, if you can turn a wrench, man, like you can take apart a bolt gun. Yeah. Seriously. Like if you can do that and you have some sort of basic mechanical knowledge of how to use a screwdriver and a wrench you and read some instructions, you can take apart a bolt gun. It's just Legos. Yeah. So that was, um, we had the, Oh, I think what my favorite part about Germany, other than the massive amount of bread that I ate. <laughs> so good too man and oh, oh dude so the breakfast good. was so bomb every morning yeah, oh man. geez um no uh the uh, marathon targets those oh, things marathons yeah and i was telling you i was like dude once you shoot marathon targets shooting stationary targets no, it's, is boring it, it's boring dude it's so boring because it it's the um that the visual the the visual that you get um it's it's obviously as realistic as you possibly can be and um the, from an from that aspect of realism, those targets there is no substitute. There's just not. And like you said, as soon as you as soon as you shoot marathons, um, a stationary target then becomes you start looking at it as more of a limitation than a than a capability. I mean, it definitely has its place, of course, but once you have the opportunity to shoot those, uh, it's it's kind of hard from a, especially from a professional standpoint from a professional sniper, professional shooter. So, but man, that was such a good time. Um, just, uh, just the whole experience of going over there and, um, seeing how another organization runs their training. Um, we were, we were shooting on a a Belgian military base. So it was kind of cool to just witness how uh, a foreign military, uh, a European military organization, uh, does business and just kind of seen the differences and the differences are pretty substantial between our military and, and, um, and what we witnessed. But, uh, it's just an interesting aspect of being a, a human being to be able to go see a different culture. Yeah. Right? You gotta yeah. be, I I'm, I'm a firm belief, man, that in order for you to be, um, pretty well-rounded as a human, you need to go witness other cultures and you need to go witness what other people out there um are are viewing as their normal everyday activities uh because it just gives you different perspective so 
um, looking forward to next year too. They, they would like us to come back and, and we're excited about that for sure. Uh, because every year that we do that, it's, we're going to learn more and we're going to be able to bring more to the table. I really enjoyed, you know, I, I, I thought it was really cool for some of the guys that drove hours just to meet us at lunch. That was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Guys that are uh, in the network, um, been listening to our podcast yeah, and, and found us. And I think that's just super humbling. Uh, so I definitely appreciate for you guys listening, appreciate the support, uh, you guys have for us and, uh, we're looking yeah. forward to, to seeing you guys next year. So it's pretty humbling to have that stuff be legitimately worldwide. That's awesome. Um, so following uh, Germany. Dude, July was a whirlwind. Dude. It was just a whirlwind. Let's just say it. It's a whirlwind. I don't remember much of it. You're going to have to help me out. All right. So following Germany, um, we went back home. Uh, and we within two days, we were packing up and heading to um, uh Montana to train with yeah. Stone Glacier, uh, our annual, or so now this is the second year in a row to train with those guys. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it's no secret that we have a really good partnership with uh, Stone Glacier. Uh, you know, obviously y- you turned me on to them. Uh, so I run their packs and their, their, all, all their, you know, pants and apparel, which has been awesome for, uh, for shooting in general and, and the hunting seasons that I, I have been able to partake with it. Um, but those guys are just awesome. And I know we're going to talk about the event that you just did with those guys, uh, recently, but, uh, that was a cool, uh, two days of training. We had a different set of guys. We had, you know, Lyle, Zach, and then Kurt and Andrew from (laughs) from last year. Um, but then the newer guys that had never taken any kind of formal instruction, you know, Mm -hmm. that are hunters, you know, um, uh, through and through, you know, bringing 28 nozzlers, 300 uh, wisms. Mm-hmm. And um, it was cool to see the light bulbs with those guys. And, and it was cool to see our shift from teaching law enforcement mm-hmm. to then now into a hunting application. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with the same aspect of, hey, you know, this is your circle of components with regards to, you know, hunting rifles. We talked about you know, stocks versus chassis, carbon fiber barrels versus, you know, um, thinner barrels, profiles, um, and kind of the just nuances for lighter frames, bigger magnums that you would find in a hunting system than, you know, like a traditional law enforcement rig or a even competition rig. Um, So that was cool. Um, It was hot as fuck though. It was on day one. Um, That was not fun. It was it was pretty miserable. Well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember some of the key takeaways that we had. Debrief. I mean, dude, 95 (laughs) 95 degrees at six thousand feet is very unpleasant. That's um, it's not fun, and that sun is super intense up at that altitude. So one of the things that um, I wanted to talk about because I had a I was actually having an exchange with um, with uh, Colton the other day. Um, cause I was on my feed and I was posting up, uh, I was answering some questions. Um, and you know, we were talking about, um, uh, training with a 300 wisdom versus like a six, five PRC. And, and I, for, and, and the reason I say that is I'm under the assumption that with a six, five PRC, uh, you can train a little more in the off season at your, at your training practice. Cause I, I think it's 
little bit more cost efficient. This is just, again, assuming here, I've, I haven't shot a 300 Wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, like I don't actually own one. I've only shot other people's rifles. <coughs> but then the, some of the issues that we were having with 300 Wisdoms that I saw in class kind of, again, this is probably just setting my initial biases, which ultimately led me to that, that comment that I made. Um, but what I'm trying to ask you is what do you think about like carbon barrels at what point do you need to let them rest? Right. Cause I know I've seen rifles shoot like fucking lights out through 20 round strings of fire, carbon barrel. This mm -hmm. is proof carbon barrels. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I've also seen, especially in hot conditions like that, where you don't want to shoot more than. 10 to 15 in a sitting before at least giving it a chance to cool down. Yeah. I, before, I mean, so before I jump into anything technical, um, I'll just make sure I want to, I'm going to consult with proof to make sure that I'm, that I'm being factual here. But I do know that, um, from my experience, when I first got introduced to proof research barrels, I went out to Columbia Falls to the facility and they put a 338 Norma in front of me with um, a normal Sendero taper and a TAC-2 stock. And they said, hey, here's 50 rounds of ammo. I want you to shoot that target uh, at that piece of steel at 670 yards as fast as you can accurately shoot it to get through these 50 rounds. And I was like, okay, sounds good, whatever. And I just was, I was shooting this rifle and I was just making the spot on the steel get bigger as I was going through these 50 rounds. And I think it took me probably about like, I didn't like race through it or anything like that, but um, I definitely didn't give the barrel any time to cool off. And I did not experience any point of impact shift over those 50 rounds at 670 yards. Now I didn't see what it looked like on paper at a hundred, um, but the amount of dispersion that I witnessed on the piece of steel that I shot was acceptable in my personal opinion for what I was putting that rifle through, what I was putting that barrel through. But I, what I'm saying is I didn't see like this big massive lateral or vertical shift or something really weird happen. So, and I know that there's instances out there where those things can happen. And um, I know for a fact that there's barrels out there that will, it'll do that that they will walk around on you. I haven't experienced it with any of mine. Um, that, but then again, I don't really beat on them to the point of like doing what they did, what they asked me to do with the 338 Norma. If that makes, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that you had said about the carbon fiber technology with those guys is that, you know, um, with regards to, uh, weight or, um, heat dissipation. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's basically a byproduct. Like the, yeah. um, main goal was to reduce the weight. Yes. Yeah. While maintaining rigidity. Rigidity. Yeah. And yeah. the byproduct and is that it cools down a lot faster right, than a traditional steel barrel. Right. But, it, <laughs> it, but at the, on the out, on the other hand of that, um, you can be at a disadvantage because it does it immediately move heat at well it it moves heat at a little faster rate but you're going to start to see barrel mirage immediately when you shoot a carbon fiber wrap barrel yep. immediately 
right? So you have to be aware of that. So if it's like, if it's super warm outside and there's not a whole lot of air movement, you're going to have a whole lot of barrel mirage. So just, just keep that in mind. Yeah. I mean, a steel barrel will do it too, but it's going to take longer for that barrel to heat up and get saturated to the point where it gets to that level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like the 300 WSMs and stuff. I think this, I mean, it's a great segue, I guess, to, to jump into the reloading, um, topic because both of those rifles, both of those, um, uh, were shooting ammunition that was, that was hand loaded. And so therein lies like, okay, like, there's a lot that goes into developing your own hand loads and finding um, and truly finding your node of accuracy and knowing that you're there. And I think that that's something that that's definitely something that deserves attention in this world, just because I think we're exploding so fast. And you and I have had this conversation. I think we're exploding so fast in terms of um, uh, popularity and growth of the sport, which is freaking awesome. However, I think that there's some core fundamental aspects of knowledge that are being left behind due to the fact that we're in the information age, right? And so it's just like, hey, what load are you using? Hey, what, what, how far should I jump these bullets to the lands? Um, and there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of information floating around the internet from people that you really don't know if it's a vetted source, right? How do you know? And I've always subscribed with, with, loading with hand loading is um, especially in the troubleshooting process much like reading wind if you want to learn how to read wind you can't be listening to other people's wind calls you got to do this stuff yourself and you have to go through that process on your own of trying to find your node knowing like making the mistakes of thinking that you're there and and then all of a sudden going to the range under a different set of conditions and going oh wait a minute no i'm not in the node and this is why um, you got to almost make those mistakes to see what's really happening. And because um, there are so many different variables that can be wrong in situations like that. Like, how do you know what it is? Is the rifle, did the rifle not have an accurate chamber cut? Um, does the fitment suck? Uh, are we are we not torqued properly on front and rear action screws? Is the gun too light? I, you know, there's so many different variables. And then you go, oh yeah, it's hand-loaded ammunition on top of that. And you're like, oh, okay, there's a whole other layer that we gotta talk about and say, okay, well, is this rifle even capable of shooting better than the groups that we're seeing right now with its ammunition that we're feeding it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's uh, that, all great stuff, I, man. Um, and the next question is, is like, well, is it re reloading or is it bad components? Right. Cause right, exactly. like, I, again, I've been struggling the first six months of this year, January, February, March, uh, five months. So up until honestly, up until Granite Creek or Coyote Springs, I did not feel confident in my hand loading process. Mm. Um, that's because a, that's frustrating because I wasn't producing the same groups that I was capable of prior to, but then, you know, obviously when, when, cause I showed you my groups. Uh, mm -hmm. and so when we shot, uh, when we shot Granite Creek, I mean, we were shooting one and a half MOA. We were shooting one to one and a half MOA targets mm -hmm. over 700 yards, like mm -hmm. eight to 10 inch plates. And I was like, dude, and like hitting it, like, like not hitting the edge of the plate. Like I remember center right. punching those suckers in the middle. 
you know um and i think you know one of the things that like you said the the process of going through you know whether it be ocw test um or you know um you know ladder testing whatever one you subscribe to you know you have to stick with that system mm-hmm. right and not bounce all over the place and so mm-hmm. one of the people that i enjoy uh, listening to about reloading is uh, eric cortina um i do as well he puts out some really good stuff he, and uh i mean he's he's uh uh he, he's got a personality to it right um so and him and him and i have shot together i run a few of his tuner breaks um which work phenomenally uh and uh i i just in i just like his way and approach of reloading um so yeah that's what i that's what i use and, and then you know my my reloading mentor uh solomon i've talked about a lot of times he's the one that i ultimately you know learned reloading from so i eventually gravitate to him when i am running into issues um you know so thankfully you know what we found out what i found out was that my last barrel that i was trying to get to shoot was just it was just a bad barrel (laughs) and it's frustrating because you know you and i both talk about how like and we preach this like hey the shooter's the weakest system (laughs) right and so somewhere along the lines i thought hey you know and i haven't ran into any issues the last seven years that i've been doing this competitively in terms of like custom stuff right since 2015 when i got my first custom rifle Mm -hmm. so like it took until year seven for me to run into a a lemon essentially right but it all kind of came crashing down at once you know well um so now it's like hey you know now i know in my data bank like what to be like hey this barrel's a go or no go Mm -hmm. yeah you're gonna know right off the bat yeah yep you're gonna know immediately um usually usually i don't know the last couple of chambers that i've had cut um i've been i've been having them cut from a couple of different folks um i've, I've had a couple chambers cut from short action customs um a couple of prefits that come that have come from proof um, a local guy here in yakima uh by the name of jd thomas he he cut me a couple of chambers um, and then uh, Tom Ryder over in Seattle cut uh, cut my BRA chambers. And I, man, there's something to be said about having good gunsmith work done because they just shoot. There's no, you don't have any issues with them. And usually when you start having issues, it's automatically gonna be what you're discovering. It's gonna be um, a bad barrel or it's just gonna be like, sometimes you get a lemon. Right. Sometimes you get a lemon and you have to be able to look at it and go, okay, whoa, 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 something is not right here. Like this is not working because I have enough experience behind me to know that these parameters should work at least pretty damn close in this configuration. Yeah. Like I know with a 24 inch barrel, if JD cut me this chamber with this reamer, my previous load is going to work. And if it doesn't, something is wrong. Yeah. 
right? It's something's wrong yeah. because it's literally the same thing. And you'll get to that point because that's where we look at ammunition and go, okay, well, like, hey, if you have a 308 and it doesn't shoot federal gold medal match, whatever that rifle shoots in terms of group size with federal gold medal match is its capability, right? So if it doesn't shoot it well, then there's something wrong with the gun. Not the ammo. If it's sh- not the ammo. If that thing clover leaves it at 100 yards, then everything is cool. Um but if it doesn't, there's a problem with the gun someplace. And and we're getting to that point, like with, I'd say with Hornady's, um, the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 140 ELDM load, that's very, very quickly taking over in the 6.5 world as the quote unquote, um, I don't want to be stealing brand names here because the, you know, the Q-tip thing and the, and the um, that's a big deal. Q-tip thing and a Band-Aid, like those marketing errors can be bad. So, um, it's the same concept, right? If your 6.5 Creedmoor does not shoot that Hornady match 140 ELDM, there's something wrong with that gun. Yep. I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I shot, for the longest time, I shot 6 Creed and 6.5 Creed. Was like, I always had a backup with those cartridges to be like, all right, with like. Factory ammo. Hey, I know factory ammo, and I've shot a bunch of 108 ELDMs. I've shot a bunch of 140 ELDMs factory stuff. I mean, those things, they shoot lights out um, for what I expect factory ammo to do. Um, mm-hmm. I can normally get, if I shoot a box of 20, um, let's say I shoot you know, four groups of five rounds, I can usually get all four of those groups consistently under um, half a minute, all five, well, mm-hmm. all five yeah. shots, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I think, you know, and, you know, with a 140 LAMs, I've taken podium finishes with that, right. Um, mm-hmm. with, uh, with factory stuff. So yeah, I'm with you there. Um, I definitely, I, I'm enjoying the, like right now with, with what I've got going on, I'm, I'm enjoying the hand loading process. Uh, I dedicated this year to, um, um, uh, changing my processes uh, 1% at a time to make them more efficient, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, you know, one of the first things was obviously increasing the weight of my, this is for the competition side of the house, but one of the very first things was um, obviously weighing down my rifle. So like my rifle, my main competition rifle is 25 pounds without bipods. I mean, that sucker is stout. Um, it sucks to carry <laughs> from stage to stage. But I mean that that thing does not move, and like finding stability is is stupid, right? Um, it's just stupid quick. Um, and then with reloading, um, you know, diving into neck tension, uh, diving into um, uh, you know, I've been using uh, uh, Sax dies, uh, so I've been ex- uh, playing with their um, their modular die with the uh, expander mandrel. Uh, mm-hmm. super intuitive um, because the best groups that I ever got and my best spreads that I ever got was when I had used the, I used a Forster full length sizing die followed by a uh, carbide mandrel. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. took two steps, right? But I mean, I was getting easily with 139 CNRs. I mean, it would be rare if my ESs went over 10, over a 10 shot group, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. and that was, and so I, after that, I subscribed to utilizing a mandrel, um, because of that, um, 
and um, lately I've been I've been kind of hearing some some uh, some gouge with regards to um, the inside of your neck to make it consistent with uh, I, it's not called neck tension it's called uh, a seating force. Oh, it's the new yeah yeah basically the amount of seating force that's been the through the through the press that um, oh amp the I think amp, amp came out came, with, yeah. came out with uh, which makes yeah. sense right um, and honestly like you know um, is it necessary I mean depending on your application right it depends completely on your goals. You know, so like for me, the reason why I'm exploring that route is because, you know, there's times where I go to a match and I have a KYL rack. I fucking hate KYL racks, right? But I need to make sure my ammo is shooting half a minute at that point, right? Yep. At that, at that distance. Um, because, you know, that, a shot like that is going to potentially bring me down a few places, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like somebody that's in, you know, mid, mid-pack or, you know, just getting to competitive shooting they don't need to worry about that like don't worry about getting single digit sds any of that shit until you can outperform your rifle system which is going to take that's a fair assessment which is absolutely you know going to take a lot of um repetitions a lot of going to matches you're going to invest a lot more into your experience than you are the rifle system in my opinion I agree with that. I think that's a fair <laughs> statement to make, um, because at that point in time, we should not be worrying about anything other than building a position that is, you know, fundamentally sound, making a good wind call, and making sure that I have good data on my rifle. Yep. Like those are the things that you should be worried about. And then after that, it should be like process, cleaning up process. Um, and then, yeah, as you start to become more proficient and, and you can truly identify, you know what, man, I missed um, that minute and a half angle target because my vertical spread is too much, right? Or I held center and I hit at the top edge of that, of that target because my vertical spread is too much. So sure, at that point, yeah, absolutely. Because we did it, I mean, I definitely noticed it when we, when we made the switch to A-tips. I saw far more consistency out at distance with A tips than I did the ELDMs. Oh man, I remember when we first shot the our debut of A tips was that mm-hmm. was the, the match that we won at Granite Creek and we were hitting uh ten inch Dead ten inch center. plates at a thousand um in twenty yeah. any twenty five mile an hour wind conditions. Yeah uh, and that and that got me sold. <laughs> the <clears throat> the other aspect of that too is the fact that that um you know the the consistency in the projectile construction um, lends itself to that. And then the accuracy of the radar-derived drag curve that Hornady has for that projectile or all those projectiles is exceptionally accurate, if not the most accurate out there. So, like, you couple that with good reloading practices, making sure that I am in the node, that I'm not going to see any flyers uh, come as a result of being on the ragged edge on either the high end or the low end. Um, that's important. And then making sure that your that your reloading practices are consistent enough to yield, hey, do I have consistent bullet release and do I have consistent pressure? Like, 
those two things need to be in line in order for you to have the finest ammunition available to you. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's definitely a rabbit hole that I've enjoyed kind of learning. Um, but it's, I mean, it's just it does it, it's without without its uh, problems, right? It's just like when when a gun's not shooting, just like your car, right? You're like, man, like, what the hell am I going to do to fix it? It's uh, interesting. It's I, I agree, and I'm and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, so like as an example, I load all of my training ammunition, um, training in class ammo, um, for my six five. I load it on on my Dillon 650, right? And I just put, I have redding dies, uh, redding sizing dies and seating dies in there, um, bushings, and I use a mandrel. And I use, I just use Hornady brass for all of my training and, and class ammo. I'm loading that ammo on a, on a progressive press, utilizing those twin Hornady um, Pro Charge Master new powder throwers. And man, I'm getting I'm getting one hole groups, and my standard deviations are like eight feet a second or less. And it's just you're like, okay, well, what, what else? I mean, it works. It works just fine. And I'm not I'm not missing targets because of you know making 900 yard headshots on confirmation plates out there, and you know 1100 yard headshots on like little nine nine inch wide by 11 inch tall I, I just call them confirmation plates like hey you're on the big plate now really refine that elevation and try to get yourself on that one minute of angle um you know confirmation plate and it's it's hitting that over and over again and i was like dude what more do i want what more do i need at that point i, I think well i think with with the again the advances of technology pushing forward and bullet construction, better bullet mm -hmm. options. I think we talked about this with with cartridge selection. I think cartridge selection is based heavily on bullets availability and capability. Absolutely. Right. Agree. And I think, you know, a lot of people ask me like, oh, well, why'd you go to this cartridge or that cartridge or stuff like that? And I realized like really the root answer is, is, you know, I'm basing it around the bullet that I want to shoot and the velocity that I want to try to achieve with that bullet. Right. You know, um, based off of not only um, performance, but uh, um, longevity of the barrel over time. Right. So like, for instance, I'm not cooking any of my, my loads. Like all, all my loads are pretty moderate. You know, they're not mild. They're not on the low end. They're not definitely not on the high, high end. Um, but, uh, I, I like to, to have that moderate load because, um, you know, it's expensive to go through brass. It's expensive to go through barrels. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the amount of time it takes when you burn out a barrel to, you know, send it back to a gunsmith, get it chambered up, redo a load, load workup, right. <clears throat> it takes a lot of time. You know, if you're burning your, uh, a six Creed barrel out every 1200 rounds, you know, right. for me, I can get, I can go through that in like two months. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a break oh, in yeah. at 250 rounds minimum, 250 rounds mm -hmm. before I take that thing to a match. Right. Um, and yeah. so then I shoot a match. That's another 250. So I'm at 500. 
do maybe a little bit of practice with it, take it to a, th a third match or a second match. I'm at 750, take to a last match at 1,000. I'm not, if anything, I'm not taking that to, you know, a stretch. And I know guys are pushing it a little further, um, but, you know, when you're, you're investing so much into, again, competition, <clears throat> yeah. um, travel, uh, you know, travel, lodging, match fees, all this stuff, right? A $300 replacement barrel is not worth sacrificing all those three things just to go to a match with a shot out barrel. Nope. Yeah, especially if you're just like at the ragged edge of it, you know, it's, that's pointless. Yeah. So, I mean, these are just things, and, and, and it's 22 tomorrow. It's Monday right now. I, I'm sure, hopefully, Brian can get this out on Wednesday. But tomorrow I'll be doing a, a class on, or doing a headspace hub of competing at the highest level because, you know, one of the things that I've found just lately is kind of my journey um, of trying to get back to the top, right, um, at competing and, and, and finding all these things, which I think are super beneficial um, for me as an instructor to focus on when I have a hunter, I can tell him, Hey man, like you're focusing too much on, on stuff yep. that you don't need to be worrying about, man. Like yep. before you, you start n turning your necks or anything like that, you need to square your body up first, <laughs> watch your breathing mm -hmm. and give me a good trigger press. <laughs> yep, exactly. <clears throat> and, and understand that shooting that six pound rifle with a pencil barrel is a challenge in and of itself. Yeah. Yep. So you got a lot stacked, you got a lot stacked up against you. So, and like, and then obviously the, the convincing of somebody that, you know, having a lead sled is not a good idea. Like, oh don't my do God. That. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like, wait a minute. What, what don't, don't use that. Dude, the, no, the, that's the worst thing you can do. The lead sled, uh, Facebook, um, posts are like my favorite dumpster fires. Um, to to to, <laughs> to read through, even, you can't even try. Man. Yeah, you can't even try to make it up. It's insane, but yeah, that was a good that was it's, a good topic on reloading. Um, I agree. Yeah, because it, it I'm I'm gonna be doing. I want to. I have some ideas in my head for for some content that I want to do on reloading. Ooh, and what I, I I'd like to see what I'm gonna do is um, do all three main practices of load development. A ladder test, a traditional ladder test shot at 600 yards, um, a an optimal charge weight test utilizing Dan Newberry's methodology, and then I also want to do a velocity test um, using Satterley's method. And I want to see I want to see if I can utilize all three of those methods. Um, dedicate one barrel for it because it's going to be a lot of shooting. Um, and see if I can get the same load out of all three of those different processes that are smack that smack dab in the middle of the node, and see how that see how that shakes out. I think it'll be kind of a fun project. Yeah, that'd be awesome, dude. One thing I forgot to talk about was the Hornady. What's the name of those? What's the name of those powder droppers that we've been using from Hornady lately? Oh, it's the. Uh, uh, hang on, I'm gonna I'll Google it here real quick. There's so many of those things out there. It's oh, it's the Hornady Auto Charge Pro. Okay, the Hornady Auto. How much is that? 
Uh, let me see here. They are. I'm seeing it for about 360. Yep, that's what I'm seeing it as well. 360 ish. Um, so I, I've been I, I've been using that. I've been taking that to the range with me to to do low dev, and I mean that thing's awesome. Um, the accuracy is, um, I mean, I, it's very consistent. Before I, I left, I made sure I calibrated it. Um, I have two of them. I calibrated both of them with the same weight, right? I didn't use each package's mm -hmm. weight, so I just took one weight, um, and I, I, I calibrated both of them. And, I mean, they were spot on with what my uh, FX120i was saying. Um, yeah. Obviously, it only goes down to a tenth. Um, but, I mean, I was able to get single-digit SDs, under 5 SDs, ESs of under 20, over 20 shots with that thing once you found a good, um, uh, once you found your, your correct charge weight. Uh, which leads me to, I believe investing in better dies ultimately is yeah. better for you than a power than a charge than a charge source so yes because i mean i have easily over 13 uh probably 1200 in my fx120i my auto trickler setup and you know the the the, 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 the cups and after it's all said and done right and so, yes, what you're buying is time because it's a lot faster. But if you're just getting into this, dude, I would definitely subscribe to that Hornady um, yep. Auto Charge Pro Powder. That'd be my. Favorite. I can load. I can lo using those two, those twos, and uh, my Dylan. I can load 200 rounds in just under an hour. It's pretty fast. Yeah, that's. So if you guys are in the market, if you guys are looking to reload, um, check that out. So, um, so okay, we talked, we kind of segued from Stone Glacier. Right after Stone Glacier, yeah, you and I had home. competition clinics, which was cool. Yeah, you had yeah. a full class. I had, uh, my class, I, I had eight students um, come through, uh, but that was really cool. Again, transitioning to the competition side of the house mm -hmm. um, was, uh, was, was, super eye-opening for my students that came out all this way you know a lot of them had taken other classes uh so it's cool to get their feedback with kind of where we're at uh, amongst our competitors um and uh one of the students um tanner he's a he we shot with him uh i, I don't know if you remember him we shot with him last year in utah he was in front of us with um kale and josh Oh yeah, um, I do. And he's a, he's a school teacher down in St. George. Um, I do remember. Yeah, yeah. He came through class and uh, he ended up doing really well the next uh, that weekend, following weekend at Colorado in Colorado for the uh, NRL Hunter. Um, nice. And so he shot me a text. He's like, "Dude, I appreciate everything that you know. I learned. Um, you know, we we went over gun number. We went over just equipment management, right? Like, hey, you know, your your primary should be this. Your your backup should always be this, right?" And like mm -hmm. how to how to you know um, uh, uh, throw your gear, and I think what he really appreciated was shooting off of a tripod. Um, yeah, that's um, that was a different. So when I came back for that, like here's a little moment of accountability. Um, man, there was so much going on that month. When I came back from Stone Glacier, 
Uh, I think I only had like, I think I had a day. I had a day in between getting back because I had to drive from, from Billings um, all the way back to Yak. And um, man, I was just discombobulated. And I was reading my, um, I went to go do a demo for one of the drills on the competition clinic. And I was, I misread my dope. And uh, I, I, well, I didn't misread the dope. I misread the atmospheric information uh, when I built out my dope card and I neglected to check my, uh, my atmospherics and I had 15 inches of mercury where I should have had 27 oh, inches of mercury. <laughs> so I dial a dope for a 520 yard target with my BRA and I'm just like, it's, it's, I have no, I didn't expect that to happen, right? So I'm just like, man, is my gun not zeroed? Because this is not supposed to be where it was so low. It was ridiculous. Um, and uh, it was just one of those good lessons because I was struggling with trying to figure out what it was. Um, and I didn't go check that. And and when I did finally go check it, it was just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So it's it was a case in point of, hey, I was moving super, super fast my headspace was not where it needed to be in that moment. And, um, it cost me, it cost me some frustration, right? And it was a good teaching point for everybody to talk about because that those things obviously can happen. And basically it was a segue into, into going, okay, at what point in time do we say it's me or is it the system, right? At what point in time do we say it's me or the system where it's like, okay, I need to check everything fundamentally. Right. And the, and the distance and the difference was in that particular situation. Yeah. When, when, you know, you're more than a mil low on a 520 yard target, something is not right. Right. So we need to fix this. And another, another one that was a good learning point was uh, the scope situation. And when, when we were shooting, remember we took, we took my scope off my rifle and put Zach's scope on there to make sure it wasn't the scope. And when you put my scope back on, it was not in the right spot. And the next day I went to shoot that rifle was at an 800 yard target and it was freaking all over the place and none of my dopes lined up. And lo and behold, we would find out that, Hey, the, the scope was not in the correct position and I wasn't, I didn't detect it until it was too late. So all of those little things, man, you can't be afraid to have those experiences happen to you. So that way you can continue to learn from them. I, I think I think I still struggle with that is like if it's me or the system I, I would say nine times out of ten it's you and it's very that 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 ten percent it it does float around in there so I'm not saying it's not but there's a list of troubleshooting steps that you have to go through, you know, in order to get, in to, that order to, get to that conclusion. Right. Right. Whereas like, you know, that's why going to a class or seeking professional uh, advice, you know, whether it be another shooter that is more experienced or whatever, or going to a class is, is beneficial because you could spend a lot of time diagnosing something that ultimately is you. Right. And so that's immediately why, the very first thing that when we see a student have issues, it's like, hey, can I shoot three rounds out of your gun? Right? Yep. And it, immediately. And that gives me a basis for like, okay, hey, this is either the, the rifle system's capability or something else is going on here. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and you get to a point where you just know where you can look at things and be like, eh, I'm going to check that first. Yeah, yeah. You know, on certain things. Yeah. So, man, it's a good learning experience, and um, you know, obviously, like a moment of humility. So that's a that's a that's a fair thing to say. Um, because if you can't laugh at yourself and the mistakes that you make, I mean, you're probably taking yourself way too seriously anyways. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then after that, it was, uh, let's see, we finished up the competition clinic. We both had an intro course. Um, my intro course was full and then I had another day off and then I picked up a, uh, uh, a corporate event that, um, we had, a, we had a company reach out to us here in town and said, and they had a leadership uh, kind of thing going on for a corporate event and said, Hey, can we come out and, and do two days with you guys in Yakima and do some shooting? We're, we're all big hunters and we'd love to do it. So that was a lot of fun, man. We had a good group of guys out and, um, they learned a tremendous amount and, uh, it was interesting and always gratifying to see the learning curve and, you know, they're just there for a team building experience and dude, it's miserable. It was like 105 degrees outside. It was not fun. Um, but they were troopers, man. They were just all about it. They loved the they loved the shooting. They were just like happier than clams that they were hitting targets out as far as they were, and they, everybody was high five. And it was just cool to watch to give them enough in, to to give them instruction to say, okay, now go out there and and try to do that on your own. And then they just go smash targets and they're freaking having a blast. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I always enjoy experiences like that. When you get guys that, you know, are, are haven't done this, they, they don't plan on doing this for, for um, you know, obviously for a living. But just to see them get addicted to the science of long-range shooting and the, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the thrill of it, really. And then, and, you know just like anything else, the more you dive into it, it has its high, high highs and low lows. But, um, yeah. So after, after your class, I had, uh, Wisconsin, um, yep. barrel maker match, uh, which is a great, great, great match. Uh, very challenging conditions, uh, in terms of like just the, the, um, the layout of the terrain. Um, there's no backdrop, there's no berms, right? It's just all trees. Um, so you really have to be careful with either watching your trace or having good recoil control. You see where exactly that bullet flies into, what tree it flies into in the back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, and now we're kind of, you know, that kind of led us to, uh, to finally back here in first week of August. Oh no, you just had, you just came back to, um, you had a, uh, uh, demo or not a demo um a, a jump with uh stone glacier talk to us about that yeah man that was um they they are moved into a new facility uh in bozeman they they needed it big time um to grow but uh they were like hey yeah we're gonna do um a big we're gonna do our summer bash and now they actually have a enough room they got that big parking lot out front now that they that they have enough uh, room to host a bunch more people. Um, they always have a summer bash there and uh, have a barbecue and live music. And, um, you know, Lyle's telling me about it last year. And I was like, hey, man, like we could we could come fly, fly a flag in for you if you wanted as a, as a parachute demonstration. Uh, and he was all about it. 
and so we organized it and we brought um, we brought some some of the boys from the the goat adventure team down from Alaska who are my skydiving mentors uh, Martin Rett and um, Josh Seagrave came down and and uh, we jumped together with another uh, another guy as part of the team uh, Mr. Sterling Becklin from um, uh, Disrupt Camo I'm sure you guys that have been listening to the podcast have maybe followed us on social media and seen us rocking that that geometric shape pattern that's uh that's um sterling's uh company dsrpt camo and so um that's part of what our parachute containers are made out of is the disrupt camo pattern and then um we uh we flew a flag marty flew the flag and did a demonstration of uh the utilitarian aspect of a parachute it was fun um got a chance to air out our new canopies and um show people what we can what we're capable of doing with the with that uh with that tool so and cool i mean we got to get a chance uh to jump out of a helicopter over bozeman that's always super pretty and um i wish we would have seen a little bit more mountains it was kind of overcast the day we did our jump but the day prior we wanted to practice but it was too windy so we did everything on uh, friday but prior to that though um i did a little uh video project with meat eater and a gentleman by the name of Giannis, and we talked about terminal bullet performance on, on game animals, and we compared and contrasted some different types of projectiles through ballistic gelatin that um, they had put a, a deer scapula in, and they kind of wanted to see what the different uh, effects of terminal performance would be. And so that should be coming out here pretty soon through Meat Eater, and I'm excited because it was a really good topic, really good points, and they had high-speed photography, uh, a video rather, of the bullets going through the ballistic gelatin, and um, it was educational. So, and it kind of led, um, it's the same, the results that we saw are exactly um, the experience that I've seen with those three types of bullet compositions, and it, uh, it was cool to see it and be able to analyze it a little bit deeper, so. Yeah, man, it was a freaking giant, crazy, busy first part of the summer. And now we're in kind of the back half for August. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm pretty excited about um, hunting season. Um, I'm excited about shooting the 6.5 PRC modern day hunter. Um, I've got a load worked up for that with 147s. Um, but I ultimately think that I want to shoot, I want to shoot 153s with it. Uh, I think that's a great idea. I, I've heard great things with the 153s, which is eight tips on game in general. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I've already shot, uh, I shot an animal with a 147 out of a PRC. So I kind of know what it, what it does there. Um, so it'd be nice to see. Did that, did that bullet come apart or did it stay together? No, it came apart. Did it come apart? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and that's why I'm not sure if I'm a fan of the 147 and, and the, it's the cup and core construction that's not bonded. Yeah, and and because I think with the one forty seven knowing to have a thinner jacket than its brothers and younger, you know, smaller brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the one forty three or the or the one forty ELEM, I think you know that mm -hmm. could be another contributor. Because I shot them at, I shot this antelope at four four twenty, um, and um, it didn't even, it didn't even go through. Uh, and I mean that, that PRC was running 3050. Uh, that bullet just exploded. It did. Yes, it did. So, yeah. Um, did you get any bone? No, I, I had it probably. Oh yeah. Interesting. 
Uh, probably like on the back half of the lungs. I shot him it's further back. I, I, I shot him further back than than I wanted to. Uh, he was facing into the wind, and um, this was a scenario where I was like on a tripod, and the wind gusted up to like twenty mile an hour, and I was like, oh, I need to get on. The, I need to get my ass on the on the ground. And so, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, one fifty three A tip is I think the thing is like I'm 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 trying to um, I'm trying to see what velocity I want to shoot those A tips at. Um, and so that's a, that's the only thing uh, I'm 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 uh, I'm kind of leering with, but uh, I think uh, yeah I'm excited for just collecting more more uh, more data points for terminal. That's one thing that I think why I love hunting that like the other than like going to the experience, but I think one of my favorite things about the end of a hunt is is looking at the terminal performance of a projectile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and being able it's, to to talk about it confidently, you know, rather than just, you know, hearing, right, just just like regurgit- yeah. regurgitating what you see on these exactly. these forms. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and um, you know the the different types of bullet construction have pretty consistent results, right? When you shoot them at things, um, and and there's pros cons to each to each of the of the different types, and that was kind of what um, what the premise of that conversation that we did at Meteor was all about. It was like, okay, this is the, this is what we saw. Now, what are the pros and cons to each? Because you know, there's there all three of those different types of projectiles are gonna are gonna kill an animal if you do if you put the bullet where it's supposed to go. So, but um, there's some things that are peculiar about each of them that are you know it's a necessary talking point so it'll be interesting when that comes out we'll uh that'll go out over the wire we'll send an email out to everybody when that uh when that's ready to go we'll share it on social media too so cool yeah man we got a couple more hunter classes here in uh in middle of august for for both uh the cody location and the yakima location um and it's bear season here in washington it opened up on the first of august so i'm gonna go out and uh try to find a black bear to uh, poke a hole in and um yeah man get ready for september uh, i think we're going to be doing a law enforcement package uh in washington so for those of you guys that are listening that are into uh the, the professional side of the house from the law enforcement perspective it's actually going to be open up to military snipers too um we were talking about it today and uh, it's kind of a different approach to a quote-unquote class that we're going to take so um, keep your eyes out for that for if you're a professional, and um, yeah, man, looking forward to I'm looking forward to getting back in the in the saddle with the podcast on a regular basis. Man, we just needed a minute. It was just we just needed a minute. There's too much stuff going on. One of the guys in Wisconsin that listens to our podcast, he's like, he's like, so you and Caitlin just gave up on the podcast, huh? <laughs> you guys just and gave like, up. You just quit. He's like, dude, every morning, man, because he, he, he uh, I think he uh, does, um, Dave, this for you. Uh, I'm pretty sure he, he works in construction. He's in his vehicle all the time. And he's like, he's like, I've listened yeah. to 20 audiobooks since your last podcast. I'm like, all right, oh, all man. right, I get it. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> we my, give, we give. M- my aunt that was with me, even my mom, it's, it's so funny. My mom listens to our podcast. Even show, like, she has a general cool. idea of like what we're talking about, but like she just does it to to see what we're up to, right? Uh, which awesome. is awesome. Yeah, I thought it was cool. She even she even made uh, made a comment. She's like, she's like, you and Caitlin haven't done any podcasts, and I'm like, 
no, we haven't. You know, she's like, oh, mom. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, okay. <laughs> um, so that's cool. But uh, sure, man. Yeah, dude, this was fun catching up. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully. Um, oh, you know what's going on right now too in the world is um, for the precision rifle side is uh, that uh, that the world. International. Yeah, the international, the world. So go, go Team USA. I mean, right now it's like. I mean, I think the scores just came out for day one, and I'm not surprised. Um, you know, Rusty's up there. Yeah, um, and, and I'm I'm curious to see how like the breakdown of the um, events are. I think it's like uh, the today was specifically limited class production and seniors, and then tomorrow's ladies and oh. open. Um, okay. And I'm curious if they're like shooting the same course of fire or they're shooting different course of fire. It's it's interesting. So. Um, it's cool. Good luck. Good. Um, I mean, all, all the guys that are shooting up there are are, are high, you know, uh, profile shooters. So uh, I'm not worried about it one bit for for USA. But I think it's pretty cool. I think it's they're definitely making history in the precision rifle community. Sure. That's awesome. Yeah. That's super cool. Great representatives too. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, man, this was uh, right good. on. Um, yeah. Thanks for uh, uh, thanks for um everything for everyone that's listening thanks for all the support everyone that's in the network everyone that's a part of subscription service uh everyone that just listens to the podcast we appreciate your patience appreciate you guys um sticking with us i mean we've got over six hundred and eighty thousand downloads mm-hmm. uh which is freaking awesome so hopefully uh within the next few months we can be consistent enough to break that million uh which i yeah, think would be, be cool and in in, in yeah to do under a year and under a hundred episodes. Yeah. I think that's going to be totally doable now that we got, uh, now that we get ourselves back in order here. Yeah. So, uh, we'll be, we'll be more consistent. So just like Phil said, man, thanks everybody for listening. It's a, it's always super humble to have people, uh, come and say, Hey man, I'm a podcast listener. It's, it's always super cool. We got a lot of that at stone glacier as well. So, uh, we appreciate you guys. And until then, man, you guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun. All right. Until next time, guys.